Well, it's good to see everybody here, uh, considering the weather yesterday. I was beginning to wonder if, if I needed to start drawing up some plans for an ark. Can you guys hear the feedback from up here? Is it just me? You can hear it? Okay. I think this might be too hot or something. Something's too hot. Dangerous word to use these days. Well, we are um, in the book of Revelation. And just kind of by way of review, so we're in the book of Revelation. So I remember, um, I think my kindergarten teacher, I don't know if yours did this or not, but our ki- my kindergarten teacher used to say, okay, kids, get out your thinking caps and put them on your head because it's time to learn. Did anybody, am I the only one? That's a couple out there that were told to put on their thinking caps because it's time to learn. I seem to always leave mine at home at school. But we're going we're gonna to look at, at Revelation, the end of chapter 11, but just kind of as way of review to, to launch into this, you know that John in the book of Revelation, he kind of, his visions shift. They shift from some terrible judgments to the earth and and then the next thing you know, we, we're back up in heaven and we, we see a glimpse of what's going on in heaven and then back down to earth. And it's, um, we soon will be introduced to some different characters that come into play on the earth. Sometimes it's an emphasis on physical judgment. Sometimes it will be an emphasis on uh, the spiritual warfare and the battles that take place. And in our um, text in chapter 11 we get kind of a vision or an idea of what God is doing, the, the commands that he is issuing from the throne on earth. So we're on earth now, but um, we are getting to see God's power through the church. And this is the passage where we come upon the two witnesses. I've shared with you that I believe that those two witnesses are symbolic or representative, not of two individuals, but of the whole church. And in this particular instance, God has empowered the church, and that's one of the reasons I think they're so able to impact the whole world at this time at the, in some of the last days. It's because God has, in particularly, given them a great power to be a tremendous witness for Him. So there are seasons. Uh, there are seasons in church history. There really, I've noticed seasons in my short Christian uh, life and history. There are seasons where things seem really good. There's, uh, things are going well. You would think from a spiritual standpoint or a Christian standpoint, there are times when things are not going so well and there are times of in-between. But the Lord has His people on the earth and He empowers His people on the earth. And whether it's two individuals or ministries or groups or churches, God empowers His people to be a light in the darkness. To, we are God's representatives on this earth. We are the ones that have been gifted with the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. We, we know the truth and we know that God is the truth. And so we have this, this task and there's a variety of ways to be a witness it, Sometimes it's through bold evangelism, sometimes it's through an example, sometimes it's through sharing testimony, uh, bringing God's truth into conversations, pointing things out, but there are a variety of ways that we can be tremendous witnesses in the world. In this particular passage, God has empowered His church through the Holy Spirit. Uh, the church is boots on the ground, you might say. The church is uh, that those people that make the invisible God 
visible through our passion and our love and our obedience to Christ. So all throughout the ages we see or experience different times as believers. I think of the peaceful times. Perhaps nobody captures the peaceful times, uh, at least in America, as well as American painter Norman Rockwell. Just recently, I just came across my computer screen, and I saw one of his paintings of this boy. He's about seven, eight maybe, and he is just laid back on the bank of a pond. And he's got his line in the pond, and he's got, so he's got his fishing rod here and his bait on one side, and his dog is with him on the other side. And you just look at that, and you just know life is good. That's a picture of peacefulness. Uh, there's another one there that where you, you see this, um, this huge turkey, about this big, uh, placed on this huge table with a huge family surrounding it with people of all ages, and they're just ready to dig in and celebrate their Thanksgiving dinner. It's just a picture of the times and reminders when God blesses us with peace. He blesses us with prosperity. And we don't have to worry about people knocking on our doors or barging in our doors. And we don't have to worry about, like in other places of the world, is that you, you hear bombs in the distance and wonder, when is it going to hit me or hit my village or hit my house? There's times of peace. And we have times in between, of course, and we have times of adversity. The church is on all of this. We go through the, the cycles uh, and the plan of God for the world. But I think of the first century Christians talk about adversity who were killed because they refused to worship the emperor as a divinity. And some were fed to lions. Uh, some were burned alive on stakes. It was tragic and brutal. I think of you know, the, the millions that were killed with, under communism's rule. Just innocent lives taken. And you see pictures of hundreds and thousands of bodies laying there. And I think of the times of the wars, the world wars, and of course the Holocaust and the slaughters that took place there. So we have, and we look at the world, and we see times where it looks like, oh no, there's no hope. Evil's winning. We'll never get out of this. And we see other times where we think, I wonder if even evil exists in the world. It's just as barely there and everything in between. But there are times when it intensifies. And sometimes there's uh, maybe what you might call just a throwdown between the battle. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing in this passage. It's just a throwdown. It reminds me of Elijah when he uh, confronted the 50 prophets of Baal, the false prophets. And they were just going to, let's just settle this now. Who's the true God? And they set up the sacrifice. And the false prophets, they cut themselves, they, they said every incantation they could think of to try to appease the gods, to get their attention, to show them that they are there. And Elijah, in the end, God called, Elijah called down fire, burned up the sacrifice, the water and everything in it. And it was like a throwdown. And the, and the prophets were slain. So we have in our text somewhat of that situation where it is intense evil. And I think this is pointing to uh, the end times, that uh, we have not seen evil like this yet. Not At least I have not seen evil like this. But God is always up to something. And 
you're a part of that something that God is always up to because he has bought you and he has redeemed you by the blood of the Lamb. So in our passage, we see that God has emboldened these, uh, these witnesses. But the world does not like the success of these witnesses. They just have the fire coming out of their mouths, which I think is symbolic of the Word of God that, uh, that burns. And um, the world does not like this. As a matter of fact, they are described as um, being pro- provoked by the truth that's going out. So it's a time in the world that's being described where someone might share about sin, someone might share about righteousness, someone might share about light and darkness and the differences between the two things, and they are not received well at all. And so the, um, God protects these witnesses for a time. The word goes out, and even though they are provoked, they are able to spread the word. But eventually, the, uh, the world hates them, and they are murdered. They are killed. And they're not even given a decent burial. They're not given the respect. And that's just this idea that, that you've provoked me. I want nothing to do with you. I don't even want any reminders that you existed. Because you stir my my soul so much. You provoked me so much. I don't want to have to look at it. I don't want to have to look at a tombstone anywhere, a statue, a monument anywhere, to, to be reminded of the pain that you've caused me. So there's a sense in which there was, um, well, we see that in our society, right? We see uh, monuments being torn down because we don't want those memories anymore. We want to erase history. There's a sense in which uh, these witnesses of the church experienced the cancel culture before there was such a thing as cancel culture. But God always gets the last word. And in the midst of this tragedy, God breathes life into his witnesses. He breathes life into his church. He raises them from the dead, but he doesn't just raise them from the dead. He, he raises them up into the heavens to be with him, uh, to enjoy their heavenly reward. So I say all that, and then that particular passage ends with these words in verse 14. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So all that I just reviewed there is the second woe. There's a third woe to come. But I just want to warn you of those who are uh, diligent to study your Bibles, and you're going to be looking for indicators of the third woe, because John did such a good job at telling us, here's the first woe. Here's the second woe. The second woe is over, but he doesn't tell us when the third woe starts. He just doesn't. So I'm going to assume that the next passage that we're going to read this morning has to do with the beginning of this um, third woe. So let's look at our verses in chapter 11, 15 through 19. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. 
The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was open, and the ark of his covenant was seen within this temple, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. The first thing I want to make note of this morning is the mention of the kingdom of the world. The seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices. Of course, there were loud voices. Everything's loud in heaven. Saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. There are actually two ways to look at this reign of Christ. Uh, One way is to look at it at the time of the death and resurrection of Christ because that's when he was raised into heaven, he ascended into heaven, he was seated at the right hand of the Father, which symbolizes that he is in a reigning, ruling position. And so there are those that say that it's describing the beginning of his reign that will never end um, at his death and resurrection. And there is uh, truth to that. Uh, When Christ's ministry that's already in the past, uh, there's a sense in which it's, it's complete, it's finished, he said on the cross. What he came to do to, re- to save sinners and to be able to reign and rule over the world to conquer the devil and to conquer death, that is finished. So there's a sense in which that's true. But then there's also the sense in which it's not finalized. So the other position is that, well, that's true, but Christ, in the very end, he finishes the task, you might say, Uh, practically or materially because though he reigns and rules we still see um, destruction we still see evil that has not completely been conquered yet of course that's the I, I believe that that is the proper way to look at this passage everything points to it as far as I can see as the end time as a matter of fact when it says who is and was did you notice that there's something missing there who is and was and, and who is to come is what we're used to, right? And they strategically leave that out, I think, because in this scene, he has come. And he, is, he has uh, vanquished the enemy. He has finished his job. So we have this, uh, there, there's a difference between Christ ruling and yet still being contested which is what we are experiencing now. But there will come a time when Christ will rule and not be contested. All his enemies have become his footstool. And there's just no more rebellion left. Every enemy, all evil has been put in its place. It's been contained. Uh, the wrath has been issued. And, there, and, and it continues like that forever and ever. The thing I want to make clear when we think about these terms is that we don't ever want to think that we have to wait for Christ to reign and rule. That we have to wait for this scene. We have to wait for the end times. We have to wait for the devil to be in the lake of fire. Because that will, that will mess practically with our theology and our lives, whether we realize it or not. It's important, and I think Scripture makes it very clear to all those that have been redeemed by Christ, that Christ reigns and rules now. 
He has been given all authority and he does sit at the right hand of the Father. He reigns and rules though his reign is contested. Now this is particularly important, I think, for us so that we don't ever become despondent and live in constant despair when it looks like evil has the upper hand, so to speak. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So, in your life, in my life, Christ rules supreme. And it's not like there's a greater power that exists than Christ. And we don't have to wait for that. We get to experience the victories of that now. And the only reason that enemies exist and evil exist, you know, as I speak, continue to exist, is because the sovereign God permits it for his mysterious purposes. He has a purpose for everything. But now, even now, he is exercising his wrath upon man. We don't have to wait for that either. I think of John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's, it's very clear that the wrath of God falls and is on sinful humanity and is on this broken world and this cursed world. So it's, it's not that we have to wait for it, it's just that it builds and there is a crescendo or an apex to all of this. So he reigns contested, and he will reign uncontested. He's uh, unstoppable. He's in an unstoppable position. He's an unstoppable authority. And the reason this is important, I think, is because that's why in our worship times, we celebrate the victorious risen Savior. We celebrate the victory that, he, that has already taken place. That's why we, we have joy in our times of worship as believers. It's not because we have to wait for our Savior and our King to come back and reign and rule. He's already intimately involved in our lives, in everything, all of the battles that we have. He, he is serving His purpose. Everything that we experience in our Christian life on this earth has this divine purpose. And we were reminded in Sunday school that we are to conform to the image of Christ. And if that's really what we want, and we trust God to do that in our lives, then He's going to do it. And He's going to use uh, what we might consider to be unconventional ways. Like we like to be in control, and we like to say to God, here's how I see this happening. And, and we exclude a lot of things. But God knows our hearts better than we know. He knows what it takes to turn us into very, very faithful, committed believers no matter what's going on around us. And that's what he does. And he does that because he reigns and rules. He can do that. He can rearrange circumstances in our life with the purpose of reaching our hearts and our souls. So this, this world is his. The world is becoming his. And the world will be his 
forever. And we get all the glimpses of this and the different, almost the different time zones and views of this in the book of Revelation. But we don't have to wait. We can celebrate. Crown him with many crowns. Well, talk about celebration. That's what we find in this passage. We find literally heavenly hymns. So not only does he hear a blast, but John hears singing. He hears beautiful, beautiful heavenly worship. We're not told exactly who the first, where the first voices come from, but they are coming from those who, the creatures who dwell in heaven. And they declare in that loud voice, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. They're humbled by that truth. They're excited by that truth. They're feeling that truth of the reign of Christ. They're, they're, they're being blessed by that. Because the kingdom has come, as it was prophesied in Psalm, way back in Psalm, Psalms 2, 2 through 6. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointing, anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is what they're celebrating, this truth in heaven. I've mentioned, I think it was last week, I've mentioned how helpful in, uh, it is um, the, the book that 4th century church father Augustine or Augustine wrote. Uh, he wrote the Confessions, which is excellent, but also the, the City of God. And he explains in there, it's very helpful, he explains how in the world what we have uh, transpiring is in, in, sense, in a sense the City of God and the City of Man. The City of Man represents those who really are just interested in building their own lives. They're not interested in bringing glory to God. They want to glorify themselves. Uh, you think of the Tower of Babel and everything is self-centered, it's it's, it's egotistic. It's all about what we can do. And we don't need any help outside there. And there's the city of man. And then you have uh, concurrently the city of God. And that is the kingdom that God is building. And we're a part of that kingdom. And God is saving souls. And God is sanctifying souls. He's, he's, he's edifying the saints. He's building us up. He's building us up for what He has in store for us through the ministries even here that we have at New Covenant Fellowship, the Bible studies and the youth ministries and, and the preaching and the care groups and all these uh, prayer meetings that we have. This is an act of God uh, moving on the spirits of the people at New Covenant Fellowship to build us up so that we will know Him well and be prepared for the things that He has for us. But that's, I think it's a helpful way to understand the world. But, and there's a lot of talks about kingdoms and rulers in the world, and, and that's real and we have those. But I think it's very important to realize the other truth that Scripture makes or emphasizes, and that is that above every ruler and above every king, above every kingdom, they do exist 
But there is the ultimate ruler. There's the ultimate king. There's the ultimate kingdom. And all of these others, in, in a way, they answer to this great authority. They answer to God, the Son, whom God the Father has given authority over all of the nations. So, practically, there are more, there's more than one kingdom. But, in a theological sense, there is one true kingdom. And it's God's kingdom. So these songs, or this hymn that they, the uh, singers are worshiping the Lord about, they are declaring that the enemies, the usurpers, they have been destroyed. And Christ's kingdom will never be destroyed. Will never suffer any kind of defeat like that. And so, yeah, we sing our songs of victory and worship. Crown him with many crowns. There's victory in Jesus, faith is the victory. Death, where is your sting? That's a part of our culture. A part of important part of our culture is looking at our lives in in the with the understanding that we are on the winning side. That Christ is always doing something powerful in our lives, no matter what it might appear like. And we need this encouragement because life is hard. But God gave us two eyes, I think. One to keep our eyes and watch where we're going, and one, one eye should always be looking up at heaven to see what's really going on, right? To see who really rules and reigns, where God has taken us. So He's, gr- he's very gracious to give us this um, promise of victory. Have you ever gone through times where you wonder or you doubt Based on your current circumstances, you know, what is God doing? Are the gears of His plan missing some teeth? You know, what is happening here? Because there, God, God will allow us to to get low. That's part of His plan too. Our our hearts and souls. By the way, the image that we are being conformed to, the image of Christ, that Savior, He came and He suffered. He suffered, he was mocked, he was tempted. Everything that we suffer, all the trials and the hardships that we endure and we face, that's we 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 face those. We're not spared by those, but we want to face them like he did. With grit, with faith, with hope, and with victory. And that's the idea here as we face our struggles. He has us just where we need to be. He has us just where we need to be. And that's sometimes it's hard to believe that. And that's where it takes that strong faith to trust in the sovereign God. But I think it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool that we get to sing about the victory of the saints when the battles technically are still going on. We get to do that Sunday after Sunday. So what always happens, by the way, when they're singing in heaven, God does something great or says something great. There's a sing-along in heaven. You can almost guarantee something's going to happen. And what is it? 24 elders down on their face. There they are again. They're down on their face. And in this scene, they are on their face. They're so blown away by the glory of God and what He has done in the role of Christ that they're on their face, but somehow they still manage to belt out this song 
to him. Now, we have not tried that yet, worship team. To, uh, Noah has not told, okay, we're going to read some scripture, then we're going to get on our face, and then everybody's going to sing to the Lord. Maybe that's coming, I don't know. I see Noah's wheels turning back there. So we have heavenly voices about victory, and it's the elders. And they, of course, they represent all of re- redeemed humanity who also want to thank the Lord. So we have this um, heavenly singing. We're not sure about where the voice, first voices come from. John just doesn't tell us. But then we see some more worship take place here. A hymn of thanksgiving. Verse 17. Elders are on their face and they're saying this, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. And they leave the rest out because I think the scene is showing that he has come. 17, For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. That reign began when he ascended into heaven after his resurrection and will never end. Contested and then uncontested. And then 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged. Now that's an interesting verse because when you say that the nations, and and we see this, the nations rage, what does that mean? They rage against what? They rage against God. There's a, we don't like to admit it, but there, a lot of times, but there is an underlying um, Hatred and anger towards God that humanity experiences and feels. And we, we like to try to make light of it. But the nations, those, it's a lot of times we like to, or I'll say, I'll, I'll throw the unbelievers under the bus for now, but I'll say the unbelievers like to pretend everything's good and it's okay for you to think this or that, but there's an underlying raging and hatred because the fact of the matter is, Christianity confronts all the other worldviews, all the other positions, and it's so pervasive that, it, that Scripture even tells us what's right and wrong and when to be joyful. You know, what's permissible to be joyful about? And, and it, it dictates our lives because God created us and He knows what's best for us. And there's this rub and this conflict, and people do not like it, and that kind of hatred and that anger grows And so there's an anger against the Lord and there's an anger against His church. Now we don't experience that to a very high degree now, but there are places in the world that are very much experiencing absolute hatred and anger just because they believe in Jesus Christ and have decided to live their lives for Him. So the the nations rage, this anger. They're mad and you know, anger can be a motive. Sometimes it can be a motive. Sometimes we use anger to be just the boost we need uh, to do things. We see this in our culture. I remember um, in seventh grade, I remember in seventh grade that I was always played soccer, but the football coach came over to soccer practice one time. He said, we need a kicker. We don't have a kicker for the team. So I want you soccer players to think about maybe joining the football team this year and being a kicker. Well, I just kind of looked around and didn't see anybody else volunteering for it, so I thought, I'll try it. I'll do it. So I was a kicker. I wasn't very good um, for whatever reason. I just was very average. But 
one day my coach made me really mad. And I had the best kickoff I'd ever kicked that day. Because my anger went into that. And it was great. And I got lots of cheers. And we see people use anger. We see a lot of that in sports. I mean, if you watch the UFC or any kind of real competitive sport, it's, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to murder you, you're not going to make it through this. And they work their anger up because it gives them that adrenaline or that boost to help them get through. And there's such a thing, that can be used, of course, in a, in a terrible way, a malicious way, but there's such a thing as a righteous anger. And a lot of what we see in Revelation is a righteous anger. And, and it, it's, in no uncertain terms, it's brutal. People die. People are destroyed. Humanity is destroyed. And then forever in the lake of fire, that's, a, that's an anger, a righteous anger against sin and rebellion against the one and only holy God. But righteous anger, sometimes we need a righteous anger. It might be the, just the thing we need to get our bottoms off the couch to go do something that needs to be done. So it could be an adrenaline rush. It can be a boost. But there are limits to anger, such as we see in this case. Because no matter how angry people get at God, no matter how much they shake their fists at God and and just work up an anger of a throth, it doesn't do any good. Because God will come and God will judge no matter how much adrenaline and how much hatred they have, it does not stop the wrath of God. No hatred or no level of hatred can do that. And we read in Psalm 2 what God really thinks about it. And, you know, you don't always get this view, but there's a sense, and this is God's holy word, where, you know, he's, it's kind of like, Really? You're, you're going to clench your fists. You're going to bow your chest out. You're going to grit your teeth at me. Like, do you understand the big picture here? Do you understand what you're up against? Like, what is your anger and your hatred and your human strength? Where's that going to get you? And he holds that in derision. It changes nothing. Uh, it only, we only just make fools of ourselves, really. Because God is forever powerful. And God is forever in charge. Whether we like it or not, it's not going to change his mind. So they thank him. They're praising him. And in particular, they thank him for their reward in verse 18. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. I like what Simon Kistemacher here says, and it kind of um, coordinates with Sunday school teaching. He says, gives us something to think about. A reward is not something that is earned, for it comes to the believers as a gift from God. The concept, reward, and conduct are connected, but not in the sense of cause and effect. Rewards are given as tokens of God's free grace. And the reason I like that is because... There's a truth that God rewards us for our good deeds. That's scriptural. I'll give you a couple examples. Hebrews 6.10, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. Colossians 3.23, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, and not for men, 
knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's wonderful to know that God recognizes our efforts. They, they matter. They count to Him. Uh, we, we get points in that sense. But that's not how do we get to heaven. We're not going to thank God for our righteous deeds when we get to heaven. It's not how we get to heaven. We get to heaven through the grace gift of God. We get to heaven through faith. And who's up there, great and small? So we, we have the great heroes of the faith, and we have the beginners, the little beginners in the faith. They're, they're all there because the emphasis is on the faith that they have in Christ. And the saints are thanking God for the reward. What is that reward? It's the reward of forgiveness. Therefore, they have eternal life. They're thanking Him for the gift of the blood of Christ and the victory and the resurrecting power that He has granted them. So, up in heaven you have those that got a lot, say, a lot of public attention. And there's going to be a lot of saints up there that went through life practically unnoticed. Strong faith in God. Practically unnoticed. But it's not about the size of the faith. It's about how big your Savior is. And they thank Him for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So His his wrath is poured out. All that hatred, all that anger, all that evil, all that malice, all the temptations, all the deception, all leading people astray. Those that stood against him, rejected him. All that has been taken care of. And then lastly, we have uh, the covenant. And it's just this beautiful scene. Heaven's not complete without it. Verse 19, God's temple in heaven was open, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. No viewing of God in the book of Revelation is complete without the peals of thunder. It's like whenever that's it's representative, it happened uh, Mount Zion or Mount Sion when the, uh, when the law was given and God shook the earth because His presence is so glorious and we should expect no less even in these symbolic visions of heaven. It's a terrifying, wonderful, beautiful, warm thing that they experience so we have the temple is open God's temple in heaven was open I can just imagine uh, Jewish believers jaws dropping at that statement as they read these words because we're used to hearing this but this whole idea of openness and welcomeness um, into the very presence of God was foreign to them and you know because of the Old Testament and the tabernacle You only got into the presence of God or that close to God once a year only if you were a high priest. And you didn't go in there to shake hands with God. You went in there with blood because you had to have that blood to sprinkle. That was your work. You sprinkled it on the ark, which was symbolic for atonement. The only reason you can stand in the presence of God and get that close and live just once a year is because of the atoning blood, beautiful symbolism of the blood of Christ. 
But now, because of the blood of Christ, we envision heaven as an open place. We envision ourselves as in the presence and the glory of God forever and ever. But it's always because of the atoning blood of Christ. But look at how open. Look at how welcome. Now, we know when Jesus died that a lot of earthly events happened, the ground shook and, and people rose from the dead and so forth. But one important thing that happened was that the veil in the literal temple of Herod, the veil was torn in two. Wow, that literally happened. What a symbolism of, oh my goodness, if the, there's no veil there, it's ripped. And it's symbolic of having access to God. The ministry of Jesus Christ has given us access to God that that is just phenomenal, that some saints didn't experience to the level that we are able to experience. And the level that we will experience this in heaven will be absolutely off the charts. So what this scene really uh, dictates is the keeping of a covenant promise because the ark was the ark of the covenant. It was all about the covenant. God made promises to his people and God kept those promises and because God kept those promises we get to envision scenes like this now in the ark we know were a few items which I think is pretty cool as well and one of the things of course was the two tablets and so the ark is in heaven the presence of God is there you still have the tablets which represents the law of God which means it's all upright there's no more sin. There's no more disobedience. There's no more lawbreakers. That standard still uh, um, is existent in the heavens. So we're left with this beautiful scene of a reminder of the toning blood of Christ that enables us to have access to a glorious, forgiving, merciful God. And it's all a gift we deserve None of it. And what a fitting conclusion, I think, with the seven seals behind us and the seven trumpets. We're going to see a shift in chapters 12 through 14. We're going to be introduced to yet some more characters where things that you're used to hearing of like the woman and the dragon and the 144K and the false prophet and the son of man and all of these different things. We're going to get into that. And it's going to focus on the spiritual conflict that's taking place. Not so much the material, but the spiritual conflict that's taking place. But we'll save all that for next time. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless the preaching of His Word.